Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, and this is Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we separate the journalistic wheat from the chaff, sorting through the harvest of headlines on the Vatican and Global Catholic Church beat over the last week, and picking out those few husks and kernels of crops that you really need to pay attention to. We begin this week with gaming a schism, a kind of ecclesiastical strategic studies exercise in what if, in this case, what if the German Catholic Church has some fear actually goes into schism. Second up, we've got a separation of powers, how a routine audience held by Pope Francis during the past week with a senior, very well-known Vatican personality illustrates a long overdue case for reform in the separation of papal powers. Third, we've got the law of non-contradiction. Pope Francis recently claimed pace, the longtime top aide to Pope Benedict XVI, Archbishop Georg Ganswein, but actually he and Benedict had no problems and that Benedict was never embittered, not quite what Ganswein had said. Question is, do these two accounts actually contradict one another? Fourth up this week, we have a small gift and a big thaw. A Chinese entrepreneur very close to Prime Minister Xi of China was in Rome during this past week to present a small present to Pope Francis, which nevertheless signifies something big in terms of Vatican-Chinese relations. And then finally, the Vatican's version of Take Out the Trash Day. On Saturday, the Vatican released a whole series of Episcopal nominations by Pope Francis, presumably hoping that it was the weekend coming up on Super Bowl Sunday. Maybe you wouldn't pay very much attention. Truth of it is, however, each one of them is sort of a doozy, and we're going to unpack what they all mean. That's what we've got for you this week on Last Week in the Church, so please stick around. All right, everybody, thank you so much for being with us on last week in the church. Happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday, February 14th in the year of our Lord, 2023. This, ladies and gentlemen, in my opinion, is the most glorious time of the year. This week, folks, this week, pitchers and catchers report for spring training in baseball. Next week, position players report. Very soon, we will have spring training games. Next month, we will have the World Baseball Classic, and then opening day will be upon us. It is no accident, folks, that Easter Sunday and opening day in a baseball season occur at the same time because they are both about new life and new hope. We begin this week with a sort of curious exercise. You know how in, the, in Washington, D.C., they have something called the National War College where, you know, future CIA officers and future generals and, and future State Department aides and so on sit around in classrooms and study scenarios like, what if Russia were to use nukes in Ukraine? What if Israel were to dispatch bombers to take out Iranian nuclear facilities? What if India invades Pakistan or vice versa? And they sit around and talk about, you know, what would happen and what the proper policy response to that would be. The idea is to try to have a game plan before the crisis is upon us, right? To defuse the bomb before it goes off. Now, we don't really have anything like that in the Catholic Church. There is no war college here in the Vatican. But you kind of wish there were, because it's not like the Catholic Church doesn't face its own set of very complex and ever-shifting global challenges. 
So just as a contribution to thinking about what such a program might look like, let's take one scenario that doesn't seem so far-fetched right now, and that is the prospect of a formal ecclesiastical schism in Germany. It's a prospect many people are worried about right now because of the German synodal path. This is this process of consultation co-sponsored by the bishops and the leading lay Catholic organization in Germany that has been going on for the last couple of years, initially conceived as a response to the sexual abuse crisis, but much broader than that in terms of its prescription for reform and renewal. It appears the synodal path is going to endorse a number of reform proposals that may not go down so well in Rome or other places, including things like blessing same-sex unions, giving laity a role in the selection of bishops. More recently, the idea that even the church in Germany being governed not by a conference of bishops, but some kind of joint body of bishops and laity. The Vatican has repeatedly sort of tried to, you know, slow down this process, asking, even instructing the German bishops to sort of put the brakes on. So far, the German bishops have you know, politely said thanks, but no thanks to all of that. You know, don't know where all of this is going to end. It is deeply unlikely, folks, that it actually would end in a schism. That is, some section of the German church led by rebel bishops formally breaking ties with Rome and setting up shop, you know, on their own as happened during the Protestant Reformation. Deeply unlikely, but, you know, not impossible. So let's talk about what it would mean should that happen. Well, at the level of human capital, frankly, the impact would not be that great. You know, there are, you know, an estimated 22, 25 million nominal Catholics in Germany, but it's got a 14% mass attendance rate, which means that every Sunday there are about 3 million Catholics who show up for, for mass in Germany, 3 million, which you might call practicing Catholics. Now, in a global church of 1.3 billion people, I don't want to say that 3 million is a rounding error. But, you know, it's not like you would go out of business if you were to lose some share of those folks. Moreover, the entire church in Germany at present, I believe, has fewer than 50 seminarians studying for the priesthood. You take a place like India, which has basically the same number of Catholics, it ordains about 500 priests every year. In other words, 10 times as much. So the human cost of a schism in Germany might not be that great. Financially, it certainly would be a blow. The German Catholic Church is one of the wealthiest in the world. Some estimates, if you add up all of the real estate and other properties and capital owned by the 27 dioceses in Germany, you could get to something like 400 billion euro, of which maybe 100 billion or so is actually in capital, that it's more or less liquid. I mean, that is a serious chunk of change. Of course, the church in Germany benefits from the church tax system, where every Catholic taxpayer, a percentage of their income tax payments, is designated to their church every year that, that nets the German Catholic Church billions of dollars in state income. It is allowed of the Catholic Church in Germany to be the second largest employer in the country after the German government. It has a payroll of about 800,000 people. So, you know, from a financial point of view, it's a major player. And of course, the German church contributes about, you know, a fifth to a quarter of the Vatican's annual operating budget every year. Should Germany walk away, that money, of course, would have to be made up for in some other way. And this is at a moment where the Vatican is already struggling 
to make ends meet. So, you know, the dollars and cents of it would be significant. But, you know, where it truly gets interesting is pondering the politics of it all. You know, during the Francis Papacy, the German Catholic Church has been one of the most important supporters of the Pope's progressive or liberal reform agenda. I mean, think about communion for divorced and remarried Catholics, which was the door that was opened by the Pope in Amoris Laetitia in 2016. The great author of that was a German cardinal, German Cardinal Walter Casper. Cardinal Reinhard Marx of Munich has been a big backer of the Pope's reform proposals in other areas. And so it is probably fair to say that if the German Catholic Church were to go into some kind of schism, that the net effect of that would be to take a strong source of support for the liberal agenda of the church, to take that out, and correspondingly, therefore, it would strengthen the conservative case. First of all, it would immediately lend credence to those conservative critics of the German exercise who have been warning that it's going to end in schism. But secondly, it would mean that many of the debating foils of those conservative critics are no longer taking part in the Catholic game. And so net-net, it would probably benefit the conservative side, it would diminish the liberal side, which is ironic, isn't it? Because what it would suggest is that from a strategic point of view, it ought to be the liberals who want to rein in the German reform process, and it would be the conservatives who want to see it go as far and as fast as it possibly can, because their interest would be served if it runs off the rails. As I say, this is a very unlikely scenario in any event, but it is nevertheless interesting to sort of game it out. And I would suggest this may help make some sense of what otherwise has seen the puzzling response of Pope Francis and his Vatican team. On the one hand, senior officials clearly telling the German bishops to cool their jets, and yet Pope Francis himself not wanting to come down too hard, not wanting to seem too disapproving, Obviously, the game here is to try to keep these important allies of the papal agenda in the fold, not alienate them, but also not allow them to go so far that the situation becomes essentially out of control. All right, next up this week, separation of powers. So this past Thursday, the Vatican announced that Pope Francis had given a private audience to Italian Cardinal Giovanni Becciu. Now, in principle, there's nothing particularly surprising about that. Beichu, once upon a time, was the substitute, the number two official in the Secretary of State, effectively the Pope's chief of staff. He has also been the head of the Congregation for the Causes of Saints. He's a guy who's been around the Vatican a long time, knows where all the bodies are buried. Nothing particularly surprising that the chief executive wants to talk to somebody who knows the lay of the land very well and maybe pick his brain on one or two things he thinks Beichu might have some insight on. The only reason this becomes problematic is because Beichu is not just an elder Vatican statesman. He is also currently a defendant in a Vatican trial. He is actually the star defendant in the Vatican's trial of the century. That's a trial of 10 different defendants on various charges of financial corruption, mostly related to a $400 million land deal in London that went spectacularly wrong. And what makes this especially problematic from the Pope's point of view is that the Pope is not just the chief executive in the Vatican system, he is also the chief of the judicial system. He is the chief judicial authority. In other words, this is his tribunal and it's his trial. Now, in any other system of justice, if the chief judicial figure had a private meeting 
with the, a defendant in a criminal trial with no lawyers present, and it was completely off the record. This would be considered a prohibited ex parte communication, and it would be grounds for a mistrial. Not in the Vatican, of course, where, you know, legally speaking anyway, the Pope can do whatever he wants. However, it is another example of how the Pope's perceived interference in this trial, or the role that he has played as this trial has, has gone on, has increasingly raised questions about due process, about the rights of defendants in the case, about the question of executive pressure on the judiciary, and on and on. Now look, the truth of it is, a pope has to govern. He has to be able to talk to whoever he thinks he needs to talk to in order to make the best decisions he possibly can. The way to solve this problem, so that the pope can have whatever meetings he wants without it getting anybody, giving anyone conniption fits, is to engineer a genuine separation of powers. That is to separate the Vatican's executive and judicial authority. So the pope would no longer be the head of the judiciary when it comes to civil and criminal procedures. He would, of course, still be the chief judicial authority for canon law for matters regarding faith and morals. But when it comes to things like financial crime, the judiciary would be independent. He would even have the power to review and, if necessary, set aside executive acts. That's what an independent judiciary does. In other words, for a big gain in moral authority, the Pope may need to slice off a little bit of his, of, of his administrative power. The gain of doing so is that people like me would not make an issue out of who was on the Pope's calendar every week. All right, third up this week, the law of non-contradiction. So on his return flight from his trip to Congo and the South Sudan last Sunday, Pope Francis took a series of questions. One of them was about tensions that had opened up in the church after the death of his predecessor, Pope Benedict XVI. And in essence, Pope Francis went on a jag in which he claimed that he and Benedict got on famously. He said there were, there were no problems between us. He told a story of how once somebody had complained to Benedict about something Pope Francis had said about civil unions and that Benedict got four cardinal theologians together, all of whom gave Francis a clean bill of health. And Francis said he told that story to illustrate that Benedict was not embittered, and he repeated this point. Benedict was not embittered. And Francis went on to say that some people have been trying to exploit Pope Benedict's death acting more like members of a political party than members of a church. He said, these people have no ethics. Now, he didn't identify who he was talking about, but many observers assumed that it was at least indirectly a reference to German Archbishop Georg Gainswein, the closest aide to Pope Benedict XVI, who in a kind of tell-all book after the Pope's death had talked about how the Pope, Pope Benedict, had actually been disappointed by some decisions of Pope Francis, particularly when it came to the traditional Latin Mass. And so many observers around here have said the situation is a direct contradiction. That is, Gainswine and Francis can't both be telling the truth, that somebody has to be lying. And, you know, have suggested, therefore, that this is a great jalo, a great mystery about, you know, who's actually telling the truth. Now, Here's the thing, and I'm going to confess up front, I actually hold a degree in philosophy. I studied a good deal of logic when I was in college. And here's what I know about the law of non-contradiction. 
you know, the basic core of philosophy, which holds that a proposition and its opposite cannot be true at the same time. That law of non-contradiction only applies if terms are being used in the exact same sense. Frankly, I would submit to you, it is entirely possible here that Francis and Gainswein are using the term embittered in a different sense. Gainswein, what he may mean, is that Benedict overall was loyal and supportive of his successor, but there were a couple of specific points where he would have acted differently. Francis may, without denying that there might have been particular differences, could instead simply be saying, in the main, in the whole, as the Italians would say, tutto sommato, you know, we had a great relationship. Both of those statements could be perfectly true. So my suggestion would be that let's not create contradictions where they don't necessarily exist. Let's leave open the possibility that what's being said here is not contradictory, but complementary. And in fact, let me just say that it would be utterly stunning if someone with the personal humility, graciousness of Pope Benedict weren't fundamentally loyal and accepting of the things his successor did. It would also be stunning if somebody with the sharp mind and strong views of Pope Benedict wouldn't on one or two particular points maybe have some issues. It would just be flabbergastingly unlikely if both of those things were not true at the same time. All right, fourth up this week, small gift and big thought. So this week, a Chinese entrepreneur by the name of Zhao Wunan, who is a figure, former Chinese government official known to be very close to President Xi in the circles around Xi, who also has a long time, long-standing relationship with Italy and the Italian government. He was in Rome for various things and showed up at Pope Francis's general audience on Wednesday, uh, got a bachamano appointment, that is an opportunity to shake the Pope's hand, kiss his ring after the audience, and used that opportunity to present Pope Francis with a gift of the very first copy of a new digital piece of art. It's called a non-fungible token, technically, meaning a unique piece of digital art, which depicts the mantle, that is the vestment, that St. John Paul II wore for the opening of the great jubilee year in 2000. Of course, Pope Francis right now is getting ready for the next great jubilee in 2025. And so memories of that moment in 2000 are very much in the air. That mantle, by the way, was very famous. It was designed by a couple of tailors who are from Venice, although they also have a shop in Rome. It was dramatic, gold depicting the, the various holy doors that would be opened as part of the jubilee year quickly was famous. In fact, the papal master of ceremonies at the time said, nobody remembered what John Paul said that night, but everybody remembered how he was dressed. I mean, that's the impression that this thing made. Now, Wunan, the, the Chinese entrepreneur who gave it to the Pope, also appended a letter where he talked about the great relationship between China and the Vatican and how everybody knows that Pope Francis has improved this relationship and, you know, essentially isn't it great that we're in this era of good feeling? Now, it is interesting that all of this is happening at the same time that the United States is shooting down alleged Chinese spy balloons and everyone is talking about a sort of new Cold War between China and the Western powers. Yet the Vatican is sort of the lone, you know, historically Western institution where not only are relations with China not in a crisis, 
they actually are arguably better than they have been in a long time. This, of course, because of the controversial deal Pope Francis has signed with Beijing regarding the appointment of Catholic bishops in the country, which has removed one of the traditional obstacles in Sino-Vatican relations. Now, critics regard that deal as a betrayal of China's underground Catholic Church and sort of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, but whatever, it is simply interesting to observe the juxtaposition that at the same time, the rest of the Western world appears to be going down the path of superpower rivalry and saber-rattling with China. We get this small reminder this week that the Pope, at least, Pope Francis's Vatican, is moving in the opposite direction. And finally, take out the trash day at the Vatican. Now, if you are a fan of West Wing, you know what take out the trash day refers to. It is the practice of the White House to use Friday afternoons to release stories that you find embarrassing, that you don't want people to pay very much attention to, because you figure Friday afternoon, people are getting ready for the weekend. If you put out a statement at four o'clock on Friday afternoon, it's gonna have a lot less echo than one you put out 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning, right? Well, the Vatican's version of that is the Saturday bulletin, or the Saturday news bulletin, because Saturday morning is a work day here at the Vatican. But by Saturday afternoon, it's basically already Sunday. Nobody wants to pay attention to work stuff anymore. So you put something in, in the Saturday news bulletin, it's pretty much a guarantee that nobody's really going to look all that closely at it. And this Saturday, we got a classic example of taking out the trash because there were four different bishops' appointments in that bulletino, each one of which ought really to raise some eyebrows and start some tongues wagging. Let me just very briefly tick them off. One, you had a new bishop appointed in a diocese in Sierra Leone that has been vacant for 11 years, ladies and gentlemen, 11 years. And this is because, as often happens in the Catholic Church in Africa, a bishop who was appointed in 2012 by Benedict XVI did not come from the majority ethnic group in that diocese. So the clergy and the people of the diocese refused to accept him. He was never able to take possession of the diocese. It is set vacant for 11 years until the Vatican finally got around to appointing a new bishop, it is a reminder how the evangelization of Africa in some ways remains a work in progress, despite all the feel-good moments from Pope Francis's recent trip there. All right. Second, the Pope formalized his appointment of what is called an extraordinary commissioner for the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore, St. Mary Major here in Rome one of the four papal basilicas, pontifical basilicas here in Rome. This commissioner was actually appointed to St. Mary Major in 2021, but that was on a pro-tem basis. This formalizes the guy's role. He's a Lithuanian priest who used to work in the Secretariat of State, and he's now been named an archbishop, and apparently is going to be this extraordinary commissioner for some time to come. Now, St. Mary Major still has an archpriest, who theoretically is in charge, it's Polish Cardinal Stanislaw Rilko. Obviously, he is not trusted by Pope Francis and his Vatican team. There have long been rumors of financial hanky-panky at St. Mary Major, questions about where all the money that the Basilica generates goes. That presumably is the role of this extraordinary commissioner. It's just, you know, the, the question is, if things are really that bad, why is the archpriest still there? Why hasn't a change been made in that position? Why instead go the route of having rival powers in the same shop, which, you know, you would think over the course of time would be problematic. All right. Third, in Argentina, in the Diocese of San Rafael, 
A new bishop has been named to replace a guy who had to resign under fire in 2020 because he had ordered a seminary closed. It was the largest seminary in terms of enrollment in Argentina, but it was known as a stronghold of traditional or conservative Catholic practice in Argentina, and specifically the presenting instance was this bishop in San Rafaela, as part of the COVID pandemic protocols, had ordered that communion could only be distributed in the hand. Led by this seminary, many priests in the diocese refused that edict, insisted on continuing to give it on the tongue to people who were kneeling. And as a result, the bishop ordered the seminary closed. This caused massive protests. The bishop basically had to be gotten out of there. Francis has finally gotten around to nominating a replacement. We'll see if he has any better luck at calming the waters. And then finally in Toronto. Now, the Archdiocese of Toronto in Canada, one of the largest and most complicated Catholic archdioceses in the world, certainly in the English-speaking world, Pope Francis accepted the resignation of Cardinal Tom Collins, one of the few Catholic cardinals in the world, ladies and gentlemen, named for a cocktail. And yes, I've actually enjoyed a Tom Collins with Cardinal Tom Collins more than once. Anyway, his resignation at 76 has now been accepted, and a new Archbishop of Toronto has been appointed. Former Auxiliary Bishop in Montreal, a guy by the name of now, Archbishop-designate Frank Leo. Now, the thing that makes this interesting, aside from the fact that we know very little about Frank Leo, is that the guy is 51 years old. Six years younger than, actually seven now, seven years younger than I am. You know that you are getting old when archbishops of major seas start getting appointed and they are younger than you are. But what this means is that Archbishop Leo, in theory, could be in charge in Toronto for a quarter century. It will be 24 years before he hits the mandatory retirement age of 75. That is a massive run. It sets up Frank Leo to be a kingmaker and a point of reference in English-speaking Catholicism for a very long time to come. It is a massively important appointment and certainly figuring out who Leo is and where he might ta be taking the church in Toronto, that's something that deserves, well, it deserves better treatment than a news item on Take Out the Trash Day is likely to get. All right, so all I'm saying is those are four appointments that deserve more consideration than they got over the weekend in the days and weeks to come. You can bet at Crux. We will be putting them under the microscope. That is our show for this week. You can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. We will be here next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again very soon.